Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from the Irish Story website. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show you can go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie or follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or go to our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Now we're very pleased once again to be joined by Barry Shepherd. Barry is the presenter of History Now on NVTV. And if, if you haven't seen them before, they're really, really excellent. And they're all up on Vimeo. And there's an awful lot of episodes there to go through. Really good guests as well. And even myself and John were on it just over a year ago. So maybe that's the first one you should go for. As well, we should also say that Barry has been a guest before. There was an episode that we did about Winter Natera. So if you go onto our website, you can find that too. Today we are going to talk about the Irish press and their political cartoons and their cartoonist, Victor Brown. You're very welcome to the show, Barry. Thanks very much, Carol and John. Good to um, speak to someone who, other than my immediate family, you know, we're all in this lockdown together. Yeah, <laughs> not, it, not, you know, it's, uh, it's, good to, it's good to speak to a variety of voices, you know. Yeah, if, if the lockdown is good for one thing, it's for uh, intensifying family bonds, Barry, isn't it? The Irish press, people of a certain vintage of our age, uh, will remember the Irish press. But what was the Irish press? Basically, the Irish press was a newspaper, a daily newspaper that was established by, in the beginnings, really, uh, by Eamon de Valera. So de Valera really saw the need for an, a, a national newspaper that put forward a Republican viewpoint. And he, he started to notice this about 1919, you know, when he was on the tour of America, the very famous tour of America. And he noticed the you know, the favorable coverage he'd been getting in the United States, and it was compared to how Republicans were portrayed in the press in Ireland. And there wasn't any sort of um, you know national newspaper that put forward their point of view. So this this uh, newspaper was established, came out in 1931. But if we go back and because it had a bit of a long gestation, and as I say. The idea started to come in 1919 of how uh, a newspaper that was sympathetic to what would end up being anti-treaty uh, Republicans, their viewpoint, and how this uh, a national newspaper to uh, accompany these viewpoints would be very beneficial. But if you go back even further than that, people have, have stated that the Irish press has basically evolved from what was a, a tradition of small and usually short-lived Republican journals. You know, like you hear about the, the Mosquito Press, things like uh, Arthur Griffiths, Scissors and Paste, you know, th things like that, that that reported on sort of Republican ideals. The Irish press sort of evolved from that school, that almost that school of thought. And there was a, a, a newspaper, a weekly newspaper called The Nation, that um, Fianna Foyle had from their beginning, about March 1927, they um, had a weekly newspaper. Basically, it was a bit of a testing ground for what would eventually be the content of the Irish press. So very sort of Republican-looking, very focused on Native pastimes and, and things like that. When De Valera was on that very famous uh, tour of the United States in 1919-1920, he looked at how American newspapers reported on, on Irish Republicans and, and, and things like that. When you get to after the sort of Civil War era, when De Valera leaves Sinn Féin, I think it was Sean Lamas said that if Republicans didn't have a newspaper to back them up, they're almost like, you know, like they're on a beaten to nowhere. 
So Davila goes back to America in March of 1927 to raise funds for this new newspaper. But when you, if you compare the reception he gets in 1927 to the really, really sort of euphoric reception that he gets in 1918, it's really chalk and cheese. There's hardly any people there. He's only had a handful of engagements, whereas before he was right throughout the, uh, the United States. And crucially, very little was raised in terms of funds for the newspaper. Now, funding came from a, a variety of sources, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. He comes back to uh, Ireland in February 1928. And then he sends out Frank Aiken and Ernie O'Malley to continue fundraising for the new paper. When uh, O'Malley and Frank Aiken go out, their job is to uh, gather Irish America and gather funds and whatnot. But Frank Aiken, you, you know, in his speeches out in the Irish America, he's always highlighting, you know, the, the relative success that Fianna Fáil had in the 1927 election. And really emphasising that if we had a national newspaper behind us at this time, that would really be, you know, to our electoral chances more good. So they're, they're out there um, for in 1928 and trying to raise funds. Frank Aiken comes back. Ernie O'Malley stays out there, of course. And then in late 1929, Davilair goes out to finish the job of fundraising and he gets some more money here and sets up a corporation for the Irish press in Delaware. Now, they do this because Delaware had fairly lax sort of economic laws, but basically they set up this um, company in Delaware where the Irish press, you know, is based where the money goes into. But basically, there were subscribers from Irish America, and this is worth 60,000 shares. These were non-voting shares, people who, who uh, inputted in these, didn't have a vote. There were 200 voting shares, uh, which Davilair acquired for himself, ensuring control of the Irish press to Davilair and his family. But you also had, you know, the, the 1919-20 Republican loan. People on behalf of Davilair wrote out to people who had subscribed to the Republican loan in 1919-1920 and asked them to reinvest their money in this planned newspaper. The people who invested in, you know, the initial Republican loan in 1919-1920, I think about a third of those sought out a refund while the rest either didn't want to get a refund or else actively wanted to transfer it over to Davilair for to establish the Irish press. But a lot was made of the sort of political situation in Ireland where the pro-treaty people were in. The, the rhetoric from Frank Aiken and O'Malley when they were over there was that these people have betrayed the Republic. If we get in, if we get you know a newspaper behind us, we'll be able to turn that over and, and eventually get the freedom that everybody wanted. In Ireland as well, the, the raised funds are, and basically this was a door-to-door, -door, raising funds door-to-door -door because, naturally enough, existing newspapers wouldn't allow a potential rival to take out adverts in their newspapers. Uh, a really interesting thing when I was reading up on this, I found out that you know William Martin Murphy, who owned the Irish Independent, he actually you know had shares from the initial 1919-1920 bond drive, but of course he wasn't going to turn that over to allow De Valera to uh, set up a, a rival newspaper. Pretty much the, the paper had a very long gestation from 1919, where these ideas started to come through, right to 1931. And September the 5th, 1931, the first edition of the Irish Press comes out. Well, John, I might just turn to you there. The atmosphere for anti-treatyites going from the Civil War onwards, and you've really looked at an awful lot of the newspapers from that period and into the 1920s. How did mainstream, national and regional newspapers treat the anti-treatyites and the anti-treatyite political movement after the end of the civil war well i've looked at 
kind of the national newspapers more than the local ones. Um, in the national sphere, you see the Irish Times is obviously a former unionist paper, recently converted from unionism, I suppose. The Irish Independent and the Freeman's Journal were both, as, as Barry kind of alluded to, owned by uh, William Martin Murphy, and their line was pretty hostile to the to the anti-treatyites. Uh, one thing that surprised me actually was of the two, the Freeman's Journal is much, much uh, more vituperative, much more kind of abusive towards the anti-treatyites. Contrary really to Republican mythology, the Independent had a much more balanced line, like the Independent was, for example, against the executions policy in the Civil War on the grounds that it was illegal and so on. In terms of regional press, like you see probably more less uniformity than you might think. Like, for example, in the ones that I have looked at, for example, the Anglo-Celt, which is up in the Cavan Monaghan area, you know, they're pro-treaty in the South sense, as in they think you should accept the treaty and therefore peace. But they're they're kind of like, this is all a terrible shame and we wish everyone could get along. And, and they do report kind of without comment on, on anti-treaty. So I think in the local press, you see a more kind of variegated picture. But certainly in terms of the national press, it's very much on the pro-treaty side. In some cases very harshly so. And Barry, we get to a stage when Fianna Fáil is founded where Cumann and Nale and Fianna Fáil are coming closer and closer in terms of the amount of seats that they have. And Fianna Fáil are actually getting closer towards power in the free state. Yeah, and, and that's highlighted, I suppose, after the, the 1927 election. Uh, and actually, you were talking about them on the John Jinks um, podcast, the last podcast, how they were almost neck and neck by, you know, 1927. And then, of course, you had that vote of, of no confidence. But when Aiken and Ernie O'Malley are in the United States, they highlight, you know, how, how close things are and how many votes that uh, Fianna Fáil got in the 1927 election. And... I suppose a lot of people would have been very sort of taken with that and go, yeah, you know, things might change. Then you had the establishment over there, you know, like the Clan of Gale people and stuff like that who, who blamed de Valera for the Sinn Féin split. So they were very hostile to helping de Valera and maybe they thought this was something of a vanity project. But the, the rise of Fianna Fáil is definitely highlighted as, in, you know, if you give us money to establish this newspaper, this is going to continue on. And then when you get, when they actually do, the, the newspaper comes out, 1932 and 33, where they do win those elections, first with a you know minority government and then the 1933. The Irish press was credited with helping them win those two uh, elections. Well, that's the thing. As I said, it's we're dealing with a period where there's no radio really. You really need to have a national newspaper supporting you to get your views across to the wider public. Absolutely. And um, there's a really interesting sort of thing. And this Mark O'Brien covers this in his book on Davila Fianna Fáil in the Irish Press. That, that's the go-to book if you want to understand any of this sort of thing. But the way the Ireland and on the island of Ireland, we had a, a, a very much more, uh, much wider sort of rail network than we do now. Special trains that were carrying, you know, like the Irish Independent, the other parts of Ireland, refused to take on the Irish press to bring them. So there was a battle around there to get this. So even people didn't want the Irish press, you know, to get to these areas outside of Dublin. So it was a really interesting um, study around that. But yeah, it's, it's hugely important to get um, the message out there. When you see the, the likes of what came before, like the Nation newspaper that was started by Sean T. O'Kelly, it came out weekly and it wouldn't have had a bigger print run as what the Irish press did. On that topic, so the, the national press and or the press is a big deal at the time in terms of mass communication. And one of the aspects of it is the visual side, the cartoons. And 
on your Twitter account, Barry, you, you, you've been posting a lot of the cartoons from that era, and you can't help but you know be uh, admiring of, of how kind of striking and clever they are. Absolutely, and there's a, a book came out a, a number of years ago. Um, Kira Meehan was one of the editors of it, and um, she looks at the election posters from 1927 in it. And what she argues is that, of, of course, there was lots of you know high literacy levels in Ireland compared with a lot of other places, but society was becoming faster paced and it was becoming more visual. So, Cumna Gael were basically the first the first political party to take this on, you know, and get their election literature out there that featured a lot of visuals, a lot of graphics, things like that. There, and this is reflected in as well in the cartoons that you, you mentioned that I, I tweet out. I love them. I'm just really, I think they're, they're, they're so on point and they have, they have, I think they have important messages for, for today, especially the last few years when you're hearing about trade disputes and things like that. There's a lot of things in there that you can pull out of those cartoons that apply to today. Well, the Republicans were certainly no strangers to using political cartoons, not necessarily in newspapers, but on posters and magazines and stuff, even going back to 1960 and onwards, as you say, catching people's attention with visually is very important. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would argue that it goes back much further than that as well, because if you ever see some of the um, the Land League posters, like the Land League were using multicoloured posters in 1881, and that's, you know, like, if you see them today, they're very eye-catching. So what were they like in the likes of 1881? They, were real, they must have been really, really eye-catching. One of the things we should also say is that the Irish press was very innovative at the time for the type of stuff that they were doing, covering the GAA, the tabloid aspect of, of being a very popular paper. Can you talk yeah. about some of that? Yeah, well, um, there's likes of, you know, uh, Tim Pat Coogan, uh, who actually was, you know, editor of the Irish Press for a while. Uh, other people as well have commented upon how De Valera's time in America really influenced how the Irish Press was packaged, basically, because you have the Irish Independent at the time, you have the Cork Irish Examiner. They would have carried adverts on the front page. Whereas the Irish press didn't do this. The Irish press actually had photographs. It had uh, cartoons. A lot of Victor Brown's cartoons appeared in the front press. But they also had, you know, this on page 12, whatever. It was more engaging than, you know, a bunch of really bland adverts that you had to sort of squint to look at because they were so small. The actual name for the Irish press comes from an Irish-American newspaper of the same name. So America had a big influence on how the Irish press was set up. Barry, let's talk a little bit about the content of some of the cartoons before we move yep. on to um, Victor Brown, who's, who's your topic of research. And, and you know, what, can you talk about some of the really striking, for example, coming to nail election posters? As, as I mentioned, Kira Meehan has a, a really fantastic article in that edited collection that she does on, you know, election posters in the 1927 election. So the Irish press comes in September the 5th in 1931. So from that point onwards, you know, they've got this platform and they're really on election footing. You know, they're really pushing it and highlighting not only in the cartoons, but of course in the newspaper itself, how come to Gale after a decade have failed the Irish people, they've failed the national question, they're failing economically and they're putting this to really good use. But what is really interesting is that 
these election posters from 1927, and I'll go through a couple of them now, the Irish press are doing their version of this back on the Cumney Gale, which is which I find really, really fascinating. So there's one particular one that, you know, you've probably, people have probably um, come across this one before. So there's Devilera as the shopkeeper, and it's called the non-cooperative store. And Devilera stand out the front of the shop, and you've got the shop window, and you've got all these bargains in the shop, and, you, you know, the bargains are captions, uh, no oaths taken, land annuities, you pay, we keep, high tariffs and all that. There, you know, like things that Fianna Fáil are known for and are the opposite of Cumney Gale. And at the side, uh, at the goods entrance, you've got a masked RA figure with uh, carrying bombs. And this is supposedly highlighting the links between Fianna Fáil and the IRA. And once there's, it's really, you know, well known that there's going to be an election soon in 1932, the Irish press uh, produce all these cartoons. And on the 2nd of January, 1932, right at the beginning of the year, they do their version of that. And it is W.T. Cosgrave as the shop owner. So he's in the same position. He's in the shop window and he's fixing this mannequin. And the cartoon's called Dressing the Shop Window to Suit All Tastes. And whereas you had, you know, uh, land and duties, you pay, we keep, things like that. You had signs saying arms dumps conveniently found. And you have a list of bonuses that free staters got and then ex-unionists. And it's, you know, like the proposed war monument that the, you know, that they were going to have for them. You know, you have all these and it's really interesting. You see a tit for tat thing going on. There's another famous poster from the 1927 election and it's don't prop up a rotten cause. And you've got De Valera in the crumbling house of Fianna Fáil. And you've got these, I don't know what they're called, they're rivets or something, you know, that are holding, holding things up and written on each one of those. You've got... What have you got on it? You've got a uh, civil war, threat of war, and you know things like that on on the uh, the devil air one. They do their version of that, and it's uh, someone called an ex-unionist and a redmondite holding up the house, the crumbling house of Cumney Gale. And again, on these rivets, you've got messages which are about the war memorial and the threat of war or whatever. So that is, there is a really good tit for tat thing going on. And then after the election is won. You have, in, in sometime in February of that year of 1932, the Irish Press cartoon, and it's a really, like I told you so, kind of uh, mode. And it's portraying what they say is ex-unionists meeting to discuss what happened in the election. And all these ex-unionists are laughing, and behind them, the, the posters, the Cumney Gale posters from the, the previous election, you know, the Shadow of the Gunman one, there's Master's Voice one, which are all about Fianna Foyle and the IRA. And one of the unionists is pointing at it and saying, well, we lost the election, but our money was well spent. And it went on this propaganda, which defamed the natives better than we ever could. And that's really interesting that they talk about natives as if, you know, unionists don't see themselves as natives or Cumney Gale aren't natives. So there's really behind all this sort of the nice imagery. There's a really strong message of them and us behind it. Yeah, the civil war politics, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't nice. Yeah, and, and that really didn't stop with the 1932 election either. When the 1933 election comes up, there's a really, it's a fantastic uh, cartoon, and it's Cosgrave again. And interestingly, in all of these cartoons, Cosgrave is portrayed as a very small man. If you look back, you know, a decade or more previously, you have... Ernest Forbes, who was a cartoonist for the Freeman's Journal, he, he always portrayed um, David Lloyd George as a very small man. 
with a quiff in his hair, and that's the way WT Cosgrave is presented by Victor Brown in the Irish press. Cosgrave is very small and he stands beside John Bull and they're shaking hands with each other and they're both saying at the same time, I look to you to win this election for me. So they're portraying Cosgrave as a small man, but they're also portraying him as in the pocket of the British. Well, I think one that springs to mind for me, and I'm not sure if it was the Irish press that did it, that cartoon, Only Our William Is In Step. That's one of Victor Brown's as well. And there's a whole other thing and um, about a, a, how ex-unionists or how unionists are portrayed in these cartoons, which is very interesting. Yeah, I should say that for people who haven't seen it, it's like the two traditional ex-unionists in the top hats pointing at uh, William Cosgrave marching off to vote for coming to nail. And he seems to be the only one where droves of ordinary people are marching in another direction to vote for Fianna Fáil. Yeah, that, and that's it. Like, And it's absolutely them and us, you know. I mean, that's the, the very negative side of Irish press and Fianna Fáil kind of message. What about the more positive side, you know, the more positive kind of economic messages? Barry, you've written about their, their crusade against slum clearance in the Irish press, for instance. Yeah, there's a lot in that, in the slum slum clearances. There's a cartoon that uh, is in like about two weeks after the, the initial, the debut of the Irish press. You have this cartoon of a family, a man, a woman and a baby. And they're all in rags. They're very gaunt looking and they're behind these bars. And the bars say on them the present financial system. But on the other side, you've got rays of sun coming in and you, the words in the distance saying plenty. So they are portraying this, that they're going to change. They're going to change things. But there's a, there's something really interesting in that. And I don't want to lose people by delving too deeply into it. But that's something that I'm actually researching on at, at the minute is some of the Irish press cartoons like that. And of course, they're representing political change. But what they're also representing is Catholic social teaching around the family which I find very interesting. There's a lot of sort of literature there on how Catholic social teaching was interpreted. And what I've done is take a a selection of Irish press cartoons and compare them with another journal of Catholic social teaching. And there's a lot of themes that come across there, especially around the family, around economic protectionism and things like that. The Irish press from the very beginning, the very first uh, edition of it, talks about Catholic social teaching and what the encyclicals teach for, you know, the small landowner and what the encyclicals teach for the worker. And looking from the very first edition of the Irish Press right up to the end of that year, you get about 40 articles on Catholic social teaching. And that's, you know, reflective of where the Irish Press was in terms of its nationalism, in terms of its economic outlook, but in terms of its uh, religious outlook as well, which I find very interesting. And the person behind that is, no doubt, Frank Gallagher, the first editor. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of sort of things around uh, Catholic social teaching where it talks about power imbalances and free trade and things and things like that. And I've been trying to tease out these themes in it. For example, there's an, there's an article, it comes in on the 8th of September, 1931, and it talks about free competition and economic domination, I get about the evils of that. And that's straight out of the encyclical Quadriges of Moano, which came out in 1931. And they're talking about trade protections and, and, you know, and things like that, which you know, Fianna Foyle are very famous for. But there's definitely some sort of Catholic social teaching element in that. And that's what I really uh, try to explore a bit more, you know. 
And as you mentioned there, the Catholic social teaching, one of the other things might be interesting to talk about is the early radicalism of the Irish press on economic issues and also on foreign policy issues, issues unrelated to Ireland. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is. And I suppose there's, there's been lots of people like exploring the, the connections between, say, Irish nationalism of that period and Indian nationalism. And the Irish press are, are no different. There's a, a really interesting cartoon which talks about Indian self-government. And you have this Indian figure tied up to, you know, like like um you know, like a post that somebody would be corporal punishment where somebody had been whipped or something. So you have an Indian figure who's tied to that and he's got his mouth bound over and John Bulls, you know, in front of him. And it's all about say that you want self-government if you want it. But of course the figure can't say it. And John Bull's saying, Okay, I'll take that as no for an answer. They've definitely got their eyes on other countries. And that's really down to Frank Gallagher, I would argue, because if you look at what Frank Gallagher he was their first the first editor from September nineteen thirty one to nineteen thirty-five. But as the Irish press is being set up, you know, the, the the news distributor, British United Press, so Gallagher contacts him and you know, outlining the type of stories that the Irish press would be interested in. Gallagher's interests that he wants in that are events in Catholic nations, Catholic events, the actions of Catholic parties in other countries. But there's also reference to, you know, international matters, but also protection and tariffs, industrial and agricultural tariffs. But this international element is definitely part of that, and that's reflected in many of the cartoons that you see. And also another issue might be the League of Nations. And this is something that's very close to De Valera and Fianna Fáil and something that has a positive representation of Ireland abroad, Ireland's role within the League of Nations. Was that something that was covered much? Well, do you know what? To be honest with you, I don't see much about the League of Nations in it. But in in terms of how Ireland saw themselves, or how, more um, specifically, how... Devilar, the Irish press and Fianna Foyle saw Ireland in, in terms of the world. They saw Ireland as this um, sort of bastion of, of peace and tranquility, you know, promoting this peace and tranquility because it's a really interesting cartoon that shows the whole island of Ireland. Of course, there's a lot of, that's a very loaded sort of question and on partition. But you've got a, a man within Ireland, you know, you've got a figure of a, of a plough, somebody plowing the fields, which really represented of Fianna Foyle's view on small farmers and tillage. Outside of Ireland, you've got all these, got Japan-China war, you've got stuff going on in America, Mexico, things like that. So it's showing a chaotic world outside of Ireland, and Ireland's this, you know, tranquil, rural, idyllic nation, which as we all know, wasn't didn't re- reflect the reality of early 1930s Ireland. But yeah, in terms of internationalism, they really wanted to promote this idea of settled nation. Barry, if we can move the conversation on a little bit, one of the amazing things is that many of these uh, cartoons, the visual aspect of the Irish press, came from a man called Victor Brown, who was not Irish at all, in fact. He's a very interesting character, but there's, there's not really an awful lot written about him, and that's what I'm hoping to to change with with all of this in terms of who he was he was he was english born he was born in nuneaton in warwickshire in 1900 he did have connections to ireland his father was in the british army stationed in ireland and brown spent some of his childhood in ireland when his father was stationed here 
he returned around the age of 20 to study art in Ireland and became friends with Jack B. Yeats and um, William Butler Yeats and, and other people like that, you know, who were mainstays of the Irish sort of cultural revival. He was very interested in what would probably be termed Celtic art. Uh, but he had a lot of things that were going on outside of that. As I say, he was he, he was English, and I and I think he treated this, you know, just just as a job, because other things that he did around this period, in like nineteen thirty four, he designed the wedding cake for the Duke of Kent. Far from being a staunch nationalist, he was an artist for hire, really, and he does have sort of um, similarities in that respect with Ernest Forbes, who was who produced some really really fantastic editorial cartoons during the the War of Independence, which were very nationalistic, but Forbes as well was was an Englishman. And Felix Larkin has done a lot of work on Ernest Forbes. If it was just an artist for hire, like a a paintbrush for hire, we could say, you know, and he wasn't doing it out of conviction. He was very clued in, though. I mean, the messaging is very spot on in the cartoons. Oh, absolutely. And there's another thing that would sort of indicate that he might have had, not sympathies, but a, a deep knowledge of it. Um, he designed the, the 25th anniversary commemorative stamp for the Easter Rising. And it's actually recreated in a, in a mural in uh, Beachmount Avenue, just off the Falls Road in Belfast. It's the volunteer in front of the, the Burning GPO. Uh, so you know he did do he did do things like that, but other things that he, he did was he was commissioned to do a portrait of Guillermo Brown, you know Admiral William Brown, who was the father of the Argentine Navy, and he designed the sets for the the Irish hospital sweepstakes, and he also did adverts for those as well. So he had a very varied career, you know, that took him away from nationalist projects. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, he wouldn't be the only Englishman who had a deep connection with, with Irish republicanism. I'm thinking mm. people like Erskine Childers and so on. Of course, Erskine Childers had a very productive, and I don't know if deep's the word, but, you know, they're very good working relationship with Frank Gallagher before he came, obviously, before he came on and became the first editor of the Irish press. Gallagher was aware of these people as well, you know. It might be a good time now to actually tell people who Frank Gallagher was. Yeah, um, so Frank Gallagher... As I say, the first editor of the Irish Press, he was born in 1893 in Cork, I think, as far as I'm aware. And he was a trained journalist by the time he joined the volunteers in September, October time of 1917. And he had worked for the Cork Free Press, but he he was, um, this made me smile, he was their Westminster correspondent. Then he he worked for, you know, other journals and and things like that, like... um, P.J. Little's New Ireland newspaper and probably where he earned his stripes really was the Irish Bulletin and I think that's where he worked with Erskine Childers during the War of Independence. But besides his uh, revolutionary credentials, he was a very, very past Catholic and I think that's reflected in his communications with the British United Press that he was looking events in Catholic nations. Of course, that was going to appeal to the public who were going to be reading the Irish Press. But I think that you can find a lot of his own personal interests in there as well. Yeah, he, he also he wrote that really sort of famous and celebrated account of the revolutionary period, Four Glorious Years. But he also interestingly wrote a really good pamphlet on the need for a, a national newspaper in Ireland, which reflected, you know, Republican viewpoints. As we get the, towards the end, Barry, uh, is there a sense that, like, the Irish press, like Fianna Fáil a little bit, is quite radical 
on various issues, including you know social and economic issues before Fianna Fáil comes to power, and then it becomes a bit more conservative. Do you see that? I think it has to be said, for, first of all, that in relation to the, the first few years of the Irish press seemed really, really chaotic outside of you know Frank Gallagher's sort of control. Gallagher was there from September 1931 to 35, and the position between paper and party were really, really close. It's only when William Sweetman, John Sweetman, you know, John Sweetman was one of the founder members of Sinn Féin, so William Sweetman was his son. He comes in 1935, and under his editorship, there's a bit more distance put between paper and party. So in those early years where Victor Brown's cartoons are featured, it's a very close relationship, and I think what's reflected in the paper is reflective of uh, Fianna Foyle's policies and views. Mm-hmm. And, and like... You know, we spoke a little bit about the slum clearance and so on, and, and the early Fianna Fáil is quite status, and they do try to build social housing and develop Irish industry. And, it, you know, the perception is that kind of fades as the late 30s comes around and it becomes yeah. more of a yeah. conservative party, really. Yeah, and there's just one popped into my head. It isn't the sort of standard editorial cartoon, but it's more like an advert for Native Industries about turf and things like that. And Victor Brown actually um, draws that as well. I'd be interested as well to look at how the Irish press and its cartoons viewed things like the Irish language to an Irish culture. Well, I know the Irish press did have, you know, Irish language, not so much a page, but section in the, in the newspaper. There's nothing really that comes through in the cartoons of Victor Brown that would reflect a love of the Irish language. The only thing that really comes close is when, and I think this is very, very important, and it's very important for how Fianna Fáil view themselves, is inheritors of a long Republican past. And they claim ownership of the past very, very well through through the cartoons. And I'll give you an example of this. is The day before, and I think it's 1933. Yeah, 1933. So the day before the, you know, the annual Bowdenstown commemoration of Wolf Tone, the Irish press publishes this cartoon of Tone, of his grave, and the sun's rays coming out, you know, and it's very romantic and saying, you know, the life-giving rays. So, like, you know, they're trying to claim ownership of Wolf Tone. But more interestingly, there's another one, which is called The Eternal Flame. Basically, that is Lady Liberty leaning over a small fire. And as I say, the cartoon's called The Perpetual Flame. And in each of the flames in the fire, there's a date of a rebellion in Ireland on it. So you have 1641, you have 1798, you have 1803, 1848, 1867, 1916, of course, and then 1922. This is, you know, reflective of how Fianna Fáil see themselves as the inheritors of all these different parts of republicanism. I was reading uh, Graham Walker's article on Frank Gallagher, and in that he shows that Gallagher and Erskine Childers, in the bulletin that they worked together on, in July 1921, just after the truce, Gallagher writes this um, piece in it, and there's a quote from it and says that the piece that he's written, he says, this brief review shows the sober, uninterrupted progress in recent years of a movement having its roots deep in the past and representing the permanent tradition of the Irish race. And that's really reflected in that uh, cartoon. And they see no difference between, you know, 
Wolf Tone and then, you know, the Fenian uprisings of the mid-19th century and then, of course, their own. But interestingly, when you go back as far as 1641, it's a very simplistic view of, like, you know, a, a couple of hundred years of Irish history, but it's all leading to the Irish press and what they're doing. You know, you mentioned the, the Irish language there. On the first anniversary of the Irish press, so you, the 5th of September 1932, you have the Irish press represented as um, Clive Solace, the, the Sword of Light. And it's basically a hand holding this sort of light. And on the blade, it says the Irish press. So they're reclaiming, you know, Padraig Pierce's and, and Clive Sullis there. So they're, they're tapping into the, the cultural revival as well. So they're basically, you know, <laughs> through 100 years, they're hijacking and making all these different elements of Irish history their own. Yeah, but that is the, the essence of, you know, the, the kind of nationalist phenophile message, though, isn't it? That mm-hmm. History is oh. one story of one, one family, like one nation, you know, moving yeah. towards history to a goal. I mean, that is, it's the, it's the message distilled, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's there, they really see, and you see like what it, what it said there when um, Frank Aiken was in America trying to raise funds for it. It's almost about this is coming to the apex of history. We're so close and the Irish press is the vehicle that's going to, you know, deliver us to the promised land. It's funny, I was just reading a thing there uh, during the week. There was an anecdote about like... Uh, couple of men down the country and they're saying when did your family join Fianna Fáil and it's like our family have been Fianna Fáil since 1916 and the other fellow <laughs> says our family have been Fianna Fáil since 1798 this concept <laughs> of this Fianna Fáil is just a movement that has been going on for for generations back to centuries yeah it is related to that you know the issue of partition and and the rest of the nation coming in, that's not really addressed too much in in the, the the press. And I suppose that's reflective of you know like the tokenistic way that people in Fianna Fáil viewed the six county state. Yeah, I was uh, just going to ask that very question, Barry. I mean, is, does the Irish press get sold? Does it get read much in the north? The, well, in the beginning, I don't know how long this lasts for, but they did have a, a correspondent in Belfast. And I think from memory, he was probably based in the same sort of offices that the Irish News were based in. I can't remember who it was, but I know it was it was read in parts of Belfast. And you probably uh, know what parts of Belfast it was, <laughs> was read in, you know. But there's a, there's a really interesting cartoon, and I, I have to get that, you know, talk about this before I forget. And it's in relation to the press in the North. I think it's about, um, maybe about, November of the first year. So Victor Brown, it has to be said, Victor Brown was only the cartoonist of the Irish press for two years. This last one that I found, last cartoon, comes on the second anniversary of the foundation of the Irish press. So September 1933, really. We talked there about how union ex-unionists are portrayed uh, with the monocles and the top hats and things like that. The November 1931, I can't remember the exact date, shows you a, a line of reporters from major Irish newspapers they're in line to get a story from Ernest Blythe. So the reporters are very cliched looking, you know, wearing the Trilby hats that have the press ticket in the in the ribbon. And they're all around waiting on the scoop. And they're saying, well, you know, the Irish press have already got this scoop. But if you look along the line, so you've got, you know, the Cork Examiner, the Independent, you know, people like that represented the written on the actual figures who are the, the journalists. But at the very back, you have... Uh, a journalist with an orange man's bowler hat, and he's a representative of the newsletter. But he's also, if you look down, he's given a Masonic hand signal, 
which is, you know, it's a really, it's a really stark insight into how, you know, people in the Irish press viewed people from the newsletter and uh, Northern Protestants more generally. Yeah, and just on the partition thing, I mean, Fiddafall has kind of a really odd attitude towards it because before they come into the Dáil and before they come into government especially, they're, they're always banging on about partition. And, and De Valera is even briefly elected as a, an MP in absentia yeah. in the North. But, but like, once they get into power, um, little or nothing, and De Valera always refuses to organise Fianna Fáil in the North, despite the fact his supporters there wanted him to. It's a bit yeah. odd. I, yeah, and, and uh, Dermot Ferder's recent book on the, the border and, and partition, he, you know, he's very scathing of the likes of De Valera and even Frank Egan, who who is from, you know, a border region in the North, and how they viewed the North in sort of almost... Of course, romantic terms, but not in any sort of, they didn't really engage with it in any meaningful way. But there is one of De Valera's historical heroes, uh, Abraham Lincoln, features bizarrely in a, in a cartoon about partition. You know, you've got the island of Ireland drawn there with a very crude, almost like the outside of a jail, barbed wire and stuff. You know, it's very crudely drawn in a square, you know, cuts out most of Fermanagh and, and Derry. But you've got people on one side of it and people on the other. And the ghost of Abraham Lincoln standing over and saying, uh, get rid of this barrier or it'll tear you both apart. Now, that's where partitions mentioned. But there's also one that's mentioned very early in 1932. And it's entitled Where Milestones Are Tombstones. And it's a direct response to a Cumann Gael election slogan, which is keep marching on. And that, as I was reading about that, struck me. It's very reminiscent of the recent Fine Gael slogan of let's keep the recovery going. So the Irish press lay out of things, you know, that, oh, what progress, you know, keep marching on. Well, this is the progress that you've had. So it features a load of tombstones coming down into this bog. And this bog's called the bog of bankruptcy. So on you have... Um, on the, the individual headstones, you have the treaty, partition, the oath, and then boundary portrayal. And I know you covered the boundary commission and how that damaged, perhaps damaged come McGill. You covered that in the last podcast. But you've got all these things, you know, that are basically about partition. And they're the only two real ones that address partition. Well, Barry, I was just curious, how did the Irish press deal with non-Fianafal Republicans as Fianafal conciliated their power in the 30s and the 40s, and particularly with the arrival of new parties like Clan Republica? It's a, it's a very interesting question. And to be honest with you, it's something that I don't know because what I focused on it really is this period that Victor Brown's in the Irish press, and that's only a couple of years, really. But, but so, how about like the, uh, sorry, Barry, how about the, um, the Fiendfall attitude towards the IRA? Do they get covered in by Victor Brown or that? Interestingly, they, they do. And in January 1932, just before Fianna Fáil come to power, they have a really interesting uh, cartoon that uh, shows you IRA prisoners in the prison yard walking around and around. And on the wall, outside the wall on one side, you have unionists they're not even ex-unionists they say unionists and they're wearing the top hats and the manacles and they have this big sign saying they should be shot but on the other side you have what is the people it says the people uh, so it's the irish people actually sorry it says so you've got that differentiation there and they're holding up a sign saying release the prisoners but the headline of this cartoon is the freedom to achieve freedom 
So, you know, it's taken that very famous Michael Collins quote about selling the treaty and showing that there's still IRA prisoners in, in jail in 1932. And this would have been very personal to Frank Gallagher as well, because he was interred by the Free State, uh, the pro-treaty side from 1922 to 1924. So obviously he would have had that experience there, but he also would have known many of the people who were, who were in there. But yeah, that's one of the only ones that the show... There is support for the IRA, but that's, you know, 1932 before Fianna come in, and then it all changes then. After that, their focus, the vast majority of the focus of the cartoons is on the economic war and ridiculing W.T. Cosgrave, but also uh, ridiculing uh, J.H. Thomas, you know, the Minister for Dominions. So they're the two feature uh, uh, people. Ramsay MacDonald also uh, gets ridiculed as well, but... They're not so much focusing on any particular group, more the trade dispute that's that's kicking off. And I would really love if Victor Brown had continued on there, you would have got more and more stuff about the economic wars that developed. But also there's a real, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's a regret, if it's my personal regret, it probably wasn't, wasn't one of his, that he doesn't feature the blue shirts or anything like that. I think oh, yes. he... he um, sort of finishes there just as they're, you know, on the on the uh, ascendancy. So it would have been very interesting to see how the Irish press would have covered the blue shirts in um, cartoon form. Yeah, and just to kind of bring it up to up to date, Barry, I mean, today, like, political parties uh, generally don't use cartoons or illustrations so much, but, like, the, the meme on the internet, which is essentially the, visually the same thing, yeah. is very much alive and well. Do you see that as kind of a continuation of what people like Victor Brown were doing back in those days? Absolutely, um, but there's there's less originality. You know, people yeah. are people are just using the same memes, changing the text. You know, it it is basically the same thing because there's you know there there are people who are scholars of you know the history of political and editorial cartoons and who argue that it's it carries with it much more emotive weight than say a paragraph or two of of text. These visual images do get a, a message across, and it's the same with memes. But you know, there are some memes that you know, you know, you can't help but laugh at. But then you know, you see the same one again and again and again, and that wasn't the case really with with this type of art form. Yeah, I mean, within just with internet arguments, which you should never have, by the way, political <laughs> arguments on the internet. But you know, I do find people uh, responding to an argument with a cartoon of so or a meme. And yeah. you know, I, I do want to come back sometimes and say, sorry, that's not an argument. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I, well, you know, the Internet has um, really um, killed off intellectual discussion, <laughs> you know, so you, you can't be surprised by how people, you know, will just post something like that and it'll kill off not only the argument, but any sort of regard you have for them. Indeed. Carl, do you want to get in there to finish? Yeah, no, I think we've covered it. Is there anything left that you'd like to cover, Barry? I think that would be missed. Like I say, he was only there for two years. Um, he died in 1953 in Dunleary. It, it, during his time there, as I say, the, the cover, you know, the claiming of the Republican past, the ridicule, you know, come to Gale. But there's also a really interesting one there. And I suppose it reflects upon a political debate that was happening just before this coronavirus came in. And that was on the RIC. So that's the only thing that I can think of at the minute that they didn't cover. It's about RIC pensions. And it's a, it's a very interesting one with John Bull sitting eating and Ireland, the waiter is Ireland, coming along with the bill. And John Bull saying, oh, so you want me to pay for something after I've eaten? 
how ridiculous. And there's a dog, a lap dog, sitting beside him, which is coming to Gale, and the dog saying, yes, fancy. But that's to do with RIC, um, the pain of RIC pensions. That's probably the only one I can think of now. But as I say, two years, basically, from end end that he was there, covers an awful lot of cartoons. And I'm hoping to, you know, eventually publish something on it. Okay, we look forward to hear more on that. Uh, thanks, Barry. No worries. Thanks very much, Callum. John, good to speak to you again. And if anyone would like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, or follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod. It's probably the best way to contact us as well if you want. To. And you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Okay, I hope everyone is keeping well at home and we get through this lockdown pretty quick. Once again, thank you very much, Barry Shepherd, and check out his show, History Now, on MVTV. Draw up on Vimeo. And thanks to John Dorney too. Okay, see ya. Thank you. Thanks.